Hey everyone, it's Will Gadara, and we're back uh, for week six. Six weeks later, still in the same room, still wearing the same shirt, but this week, actually, very exciting stuff, uh, had an opportunity to leave the house and to put on a suit for the first time in months. But that's an entirely different story for another time. For now, a lot of good stuff coming up. So welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. Weekly Specials. Good news coming at you. All right, let's get into it. Because in the last week or so, more and more restaurants across the country and around the world have slowly started opening their doors again. And with those reopenings have come some crazy, radical, and quite frankly, outrageous and absurd ideas as people implement changes in their restaurants that people can dine more safely. Listen, restaurants navigated the last few months doing takeout and delivery with creativity, thoughtfulness, and a unique try-anything mentality. And it's already clear that as people open up their dining rooms again, it's going to be no different. I was talking to my friend, a former Welcome Conference speaker, Simon Sinek, the other day about this very idea. And he shared with me how he and his team approached the process of reinventing their company. I was pretty inspired and wanted to share it with you. So he gathered his entire team together, noting that the best ideas always come when you gather people from all levels of the organization together to brainstorm as a collective and asked each of them to come up with 15 ideas on how to change the company. My initial response was, 15? Dude, that's a lot of ideas. But he was intentional about that number. See, he said that the first bunch of ideas that each person comes up with are always going to be shared among many team members. They're the most obvious ideas. But once you get to idea 9, 10, 11, and you're having a hard time coming up with anything else, that's when you can hit the jackpot. That's when you come up with the crazy and sometimes ridiculous ideas that might just be brilliant. Those are the ideas that can change the game. The restaurants we feature today are digging deep so that they can make serving people in their dining rooms again a reality. This is an homage to the courageous operators embracing those far-fetched ideas so that they can continue to do what they love. And I have loved seeing what they came up with. So here we go. In Ohio, co-owner Kim Shapiro hung shower curtains in between each of her tables at her restaurant Twisted Citrus. The curtains are clear, so guests still feel connected while still having a safety barrier between them. It's amazing. In Amsterdam, images of Mediamedic Etten's solution took a viral turn. The restaurant, located in a greenhouse on the waterfront, built individual greenhouses on the river for guests to dine in. In looking inwards at what made their restaurant unique, they were able to create an experience that feels at once familiar, wildly innovative, and most of all safe. And guess what? People seem to love it. Reservations are already sold out for the next month and a half. Meanwhile, over in Madrid, one company has been fabricating plastic boxes to be placed around individual tables inside restaurants, creating a sort of unpoppable bubble around each dining group. Here in the States, many restaurants are getting ready to reopen, but with severe occupancy restrictions, where depending on what city you're in, restaurants are only able to operate at 50% or even 25% occupancy. 
That's better than nothing, but difficult from a business perspective, and as importantly, from a guest perspective. Because half-empty dining rooms can feel like a slow Monday night every night. But two restaurants, the Inn at Little Washington in Virginia and Sunnyside, a mom-and-pop shop in Rhode Island, got creative when it came to figuring that second part out. (laughs) Okay, imagine the brainstorming session that had to happen before reopening. You're sitting down with your team, four espressos deep, asking yourself, how do I make guests feel left alone when suddenly the idea hits you? Mannequins! Yep, that's right, folks. I said mannequins. (laughs) The Inn at Little Washington, a three Michelin star restaurant, is filling half of its dining room with mannequins dining together, dressed in their finest 1940s threads, accessorized with glasses, makeup, styled hair, and jewelry. It's one of those things you have to see to believe. And in Rhode Island, couple Jason and Kelly Oliver raided their basement for any and every holiday decoration that resembled a human. Diners at Sunnyside might be sitting next to Santa, scarecrows, a wicked witch, or even a snowman. With safety as the priority, both the Inn at Little Washington and Sunnyside have managed to set up a plan that allows them to reopen their doors and provide a full dining room experience, each in their own fun and playful and signature way. Perhaps one of the greatest American staples, the diner, is also going back in history in order to move forward. Bel Air Diner in Queens, New York, turned itself into a drive-in movie theater. Guests can now get their tuna melts and BLTs delivered straight to their car while they watch classics like Dirty Dancing or Grease. And in New Hampshire, Roundabout Diner took a step back to the 1950s, turning their servers into car hops, taking diner classics to window trays attached to each diner's car door. So there we have it. Seven examples of restaurants creating a new normal, diving headfirst into innovation in an effort to move ahead to get back to doing what they love doing most, welcoming guests into their home, nourishing them with food and nurturing them with hospitality. This goes out to all of you who look at each option as viable, who are willing to try nearly anything, who look at the impossible as possible. Keep doing what you do. Keep doing what you love. And now, for a very special interview with our friend Steve Palmer of Ben's Friends and the Indigo Road Hospitality Group. He'll be interviewed by Anthony Rudolph, who I co-founded the Welcome Conference with seven years ago. He also happens to be our incredible editor, making every episode of this show special as they are, and is usually on the other side of the camera. But today, he comes out from behind his computer screen for this very special conversation. With that, I'll pass it over to him. Take it away, Anthony. Thanks, Will. I mean, even though I can add video editing, Final Cut Pro, and basically television production expert to my list of credentials, it's so nice to be out from behind my monitor and here with you in front of Will. I mean, my monitor. Look, it's inescapable. And this virtual world is just bizarre. It is working for some, though. You see, a few weeks back, I celebrated my 14th year of sobriety at a virtual meeting with Steve Palmer and Mickey Baxt, co-founders of Ben's Friends. 
Ben's Friends is an organization and support group for restaurant professionals struggling with addiction. It was founded in the wake of their dear friend, chef, and partner, Ben Murray's suicide in 2016. Now, while on the surface, this segment is a bit heavy and might not seem like a tidbit that will make you smile, it really does have a silver lining. See, thousands of restaurant professionals are finding sobriety in this very discomforting time. My interview with Steve starts with him taking us back to that fateful day in 2016. I remember exactly where I was. It was a Friday night in the summer, late summer of 16. I was actually in Greenville, South Carolina, and the phone rang, and it was the owner of the hotel where we had been putting up Ben. Ben was helping us open a, a, a restaurant remotely. And um, he uh, he said, Ben Murray has shot himself and is on the way to the hospital. And I was probably three hours away, and I just got in the car and started driving. I, I just remember being in the being in the hospital. I wasn't family, so they couldn't technically relay any information. And the nurse uh, had tears in her eyes, and she just kept saying, "He's no longer here." And so I I knew what that meant. I had no idea he was struggling. I had no idea he was hurting. I had no idea. That this was even like Ben was not a depressed person. He, he was not. Um, I think he ran out of hope. Um, but I would not say he was someone that battled depression. And I can remember driving home to Charleston. It was two hours, so I got back in the car and uh, I was just crying, you know. And and I was sounds strange, but I was talking out loud as if Ben were there, and I was trying to make sense of it. And, um, and I remember thinking like, I have to do something. <clears throat> that desire to help has always been in our DNA. Ben's friends started small and it was just you bringing a group together, you and Mickey yeah. together in, 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 in Charleston. You know, I, at that point I had been sober 15 years, but early sobriety for me in the restaurant business in 01, 02 was very lonely. Uh, Mickey didn't live here in Charleston yet. I didn't know anybody who didn't drink and work in the business. So it was, it was incredibly lonely. And, and I, I and I, it wasn't like from a self pitying point of view. I mean, I, I had, I had, I was resolved that I was going to get sober and I was resolved that I still loved the restaurant business, but they're just that kind of like conversation we're having right now in 2001 was nowhere. Um, how much of that do you think was for you, um, for you and Mickey going through sobriety yourself? I would meet lots of restaurant people that would go to their first 12 step meeting or their first whatever. And one of the first things they were told was you need to get out of the restaurant business. So I think Mickey and I were two people that had managed to stay sober and not only stay sober, thrive and love and enjoy and, and prosper and we really wanted that message to come across, you know, as you said, as part of this evolution of us becoming like a real profession, it's like, hey, you don't have to go out seven nights a week and work in the industry. You, you can be something more than that. Um, and I also think, listen, we all crave community, right? That's why we're in the restaurant business. I mean, we crave it. 
Um, so I think we were building it for other people, but certainly for ourselves. I mean, we had no idea that what has happened would, would happen. Um, we just, a year before Ben killed himself, we had had breakfast. We used to get together every Saturday morning at eight o'clock and have breakfast. And we said, let's start a 12 step meeting for F and B people. And then the week later we came back to the same breakfast and said, ah, we're too busy. You know, and so it, it, it had been on our minds um, when the, when Ben killed himself. It, like to me, there was like, there's no choice. We're doing this. We really felt like we needed to be a loud voice about this subject so that people like Ben, so that we could make it okay to not be okay. And that that was, you know, that people would feel safe. And so now this is the first really hard time in Mm -hmm. the last four years, at least on a national level. Yes. Um, How are you seeing Ben's friends show up? How are you, how are you seeing it work? It's, it's unbelievable. It's thriving. We, we, we said, okay, we'll do a meeting every day nationally. All the local meetings across the country still have their, their same times, but we knew that isolation is both a trigger for relapse and you know recovery is about community right it's not about doing it alone it's about we um and so we felt like we needed to really lean in so we started these national meetings every day we have a chair from a different city every day and they are just just unbelievable how many people are on the calls and and there are people from chicago and new orleans and Sonoma, California, that have never, you know, they've never been to events, friends, and yet they've found out. Um, and then there's people with two days of sobriety. There are people with no days of sobriety that are trying to figure this out on Zoom, which blows my mind. It's in times like this when culture is tested. Yes. Culture's easy when you're busy. Culture's easy when you're thriving. When shit hits the fan, culture's hard. Um, and the way that you guys pivoted online was really remarkable. Um, how do you think the community today would have helped you back in 2001? Oh, immensely. I, I mean, I would, have, um, I would have had more hope. I would have had less fear. Ben's friends has changed my life. It has given me a meaning and a purpose that I can't possibly describe, but don't take my word for it. Let my friends tell you why. Hi, Mickey Bax, co-founder of Ben's friends in Charleston, South Carolina. Sobriety to me is magic. Sobriety is integrity. Hi, I'm Philip Spear from Ben's friends in Austin, Texas. Sobriety to me is power. Hey, I'm Mackenzie from Charleston, South Carolina, and for me, sobriety is freedom. This is Andy from Columbus, Ohio, and sobriety to me is choice. Hi, this is David from Ben's Friend, Seattle. For me, sobriety is peace. Christine from Charleston, South Carolina. Sobriety to me is a new perspective. Hi, my name is Kate Willman. I am from Ben's Friends in Seattle, and sobriety to me is freedom. Hi, I'm Desiree Kinker in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Sobriety, to me, is everything. Anthony Rudolph. 
New York City. Sobriety to me is showing up today for a better tomorrow. Will, back to you. Man, I loved that. And I love that we're taking the time to focus on all the things that are important right now. And there are a lot of things that are important. Thank you, Anthony, for telling that story. And thank you, Steve, for the work that you're doing. And now, we're going to kick it over to our field correspondent and my good friend, Ben Leventhal, with This Week in Jose. Here comes the week in Jose. Everything is okay. Because it's a week in Jose. So, friends, coming out of last week's interview, I think we can all agree there remains an incredibly pressing question. And that question is, what, in fact, does a day in the life of Jose Andres really look like? I asked him that question, and he answered. And here we go, with apologies for some speed-ups, because his day was so long and he did so many different things that we didn't even have time to include it all. Enjoy. I think you know this, but a lot of people, for a lot of people, myself included, for a lot of people, Jose, you're basically a superhero. So tell, walk me through, like, a day in the life of Jose Andres. You, you wake up, and what happens? What do you do? Do you have a coffee? What happens? Uh, I wake up in the morning, and I, I, check my, I check my phone, because by then I see what's happening in Spain, that we have, uh, I don't know, 20-something restaurants in 16 cities right now. And that's the first thing I do. I read some news. Um, and as soon as I can, I go down for a coffee uh, that usually uh, my wife or my daughters have done. That, that usually is happening around 7.30 in the morning. Uh, even some days, uh, it'll be 9 o'clock if I go bed too late. But usually it's happening earlier. And then uh, after the coffee, I try to have one hour to do elliptical. And right now I'm watching The Sopranos. I'll get on my car and I'll try to go to uh, uh, the Nationals, which we have a big kitchen that we do 12,000 meals a day. Um, I may stop in the house of a friend. I think it's very good sometimes you stop in the house of a friend. Uh, I've been stopping sometimes in MacArthur uh, Boulevard. There is uh, this Blackie seafood market that they do a very good job with fresh seafood. And I may buy some seafood and I always buy to two or three or four friends and I drop some in their door so they have some fresh fish that seems now is becoming a high commodity and in my way i will deliver food to nih with my daughters uh it's a children's hospital there uh, i may take care of my garden a little bit by then i will come back and i i have asparagus now i'm very very happy and then i will do bread i will do the mix with my sourdough uh, i will re refeed the sourdough before I take some out, make the initial mix, and then start making one or two loaves of bread. And we sit down for dinner, we open a bottle of wine. We, uh, sometimes Paul Greco or others will do a in call to teach us about one particular region. Uh, Jack Pepin gave, gave them a class the other day about French omelette. Uh, that's it, and then I go back, and it can be one, and then here we go again. You know, some days I receive a phone call from, not, not to brag about it, but, you know, like, oh, today I spoke to uh, President Obama. 
Oh, and today I spoke to Oprah Winfrey. Oh, today, and it's kind of unreal um, because sometimes you are even in the middle of all the things that are very important and you are like, excuse me, I'm busy. <laughs> what is that like? What is that like to get a phone call from Obama? What, what, how does that happen? First of all, does he just call you or is somebody calling and then he gets on the phone? Yeah, it's, yeah, all of the above. Um, but when he calls, you show it to your daughter, right? You say, hey, look who's calling. <laughs> Here comes the week in Jose. Everything is okay. Because it's a week in Jose. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Jose. <laughs> Every week. Every week. Uh, 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 I'm blown away by this guy. That's all we got for this week. But back by popular demand. Listen, last week, you asked for Aaron Retier, and we gave him to you. And this week, you asked for more. Aaron, welcome back. Take it away. And to all you at home, thanks for joining us here, and we'll see you next week at Weekly Specials. Thank you, Will. Pleasure to be back on Weekly Specials. We're, uh... Man, I'm proud of you. Went to the dang White House. Up there, talking to the press. That must have been terrifying. They let anybody in there these days, won't they? I ought to go knock on the door. Um, I've got another song for you. This one is about just the tip. I can't wait for that table full of fat wallet jokers who keep complicating orders and spilling all their drinks. They can keep waving at my hostess. Man, they might be the grossest people that I've ever served. It won't bother me. And when they don't leave me nothing but some pocket chain, no, you ain't gonna hear this poor waiter complain. Because they pay. Thank you for tuning in and hope you'll join us again next week on Weekly Specials. This show is produced by the team at the Welcome Conference and our production partners at Resi. And thank you to our longtime partners at American Express and Sam Pellegrino for their unwavering support. During a time when we're not able to come together in person, their support allows us to connect with you here. Want to stay in touch or learn more? Visit us at welcomeconference.org or on Instagram at welcomeconference. It's the weekly specials. Weekly specials. Good news coming at you. The weekly specials.